0: This week's episode is brought to you by gibbsclassical.com. This fall, you can study Paradise Lost with Joshua Gibbs. Beginning September 2nd, Joshua is teaching Paradise Lost for Beginners, a 14-week online course. The class is open to anyone 15 and older and is available on the student level and auditor level, which is perfect for busy parents who want to keep studying the classics. In the spring, he is also teaching Wisdom Literature for Beginners, which is a study of the Consolation of Philosophy and Ecclesiastes. You can find more and register at gibbsclassical.com. this week's episode of Quiddity on the Searcy Podcast Network, where we engage in the classical spirit of inquiry. I'm your guide, Brandon LeBlanc. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Justin Jackson. Dr. Jackson holds a BA and MA in English from California State University, as well as a PhD in Old and Middle English Literature from Purdue University. He's currently the chair and professor of English and the director of writing for Hillsdale College in Hillsdale, Michigan. Welcome, Dr. Jackson.
1: Thanks for having me, Brandon.
0: I'm really excited to have you here today. You gave a few talks at our national conference this summer, one of which was The Cosmic Mystery of Christ, Imagining Atonement in Medieval Poetry. I left that talk with so many questions that I just decided to abuse my power as the host of the show and uh, have you here to answer them. Listeners, if you want to hear Dr. Jackson's talk, I'll include links to it and other audio from the conference in the show notes. So you covered uh, a lot of ground in your talk, including three medieval works that I want to get to in a few moments. But there were also some concepts you touched on that I know I'd benefit a little bit from a little more background on. Um, right at the beginning, you kind of let us know why you were focusing on the old Eng- uh, or kind of middle English, I think, not not the old English. Um, and you you mentioned something that the old English tended to have a primarily uh, Christus Victor view uh, and and not. Uh, the higher Christology. So I wondered if you could just start off by giving us a little bit of background on what the distinction is between those two uh, particular perceptions of Christ.
1: Sure. The Christus Victor is a pretty simple narrative used from the beginning of the church. Uh, You find it all throughout scripture, as you do with every theory of atonement. There are always scriptural passages for every theory of atonement that you have. It just depends on what one emphasizes. In Old English literature, uh, they were still working within what what I would argue is very much a Christus Victor, and the Christus Victor is pretty pretty simple. Gosh, you could find it. uh, You can find the roots of this even in heavy roots in it in Second Temple Judaism, and it goes something like this: that there are powers and principalities of the world, that is to say, demons who are there to trip you up. Satan, who is the master of of this world, uh, who reigns in Sheol or Hades, Um, and what, quote-unquote, separates you from God would be your sin, which you're prompted to that by these demons, by Satan, and death itself separates you from God as you stand there in Sheol um, uh, with your soul, That is to say, your soul is there in Sheol, Um, all sorts of Psalms, the book of Jonah, you name it, book of uh, Job. uh, They imagine that Sheol is a place, perhaps, perhaps, uh, where God is not. The soul cries out from the place of the dead. It cries out to the God who created the soul come and rescue me. Uh, would that you were here with me. And so Christus Victor is pretty simple. God became man, took on a human body, took on a human soul, took on all of human nature, so that when he died, his body is in the tomb, uh, though God is still with his body. Uh, his soul is in Hades, in Sheol. Um, um Though God is still with para- in paradise with the thief, though Christ is still still sitting with the Father and the Holy Spirit, the point here is that He's with this soul and shale. And what does that mean? Well, if that was ever a place of separation of the soul from God, if this was the place where God was not. Uh, That is no longer the case, that God is there, and he ruptures, he destroys Hades, he goes down and he defeats Satan, he defeats death, he's bringing the soul and the body back together, that's the image of the resurrection. He takes that which was unnatural, that is to say, death, the separation of the soul from the body, which is an unnatural, personal, (coughs) uh, uh, personal, uh, existence in this world <clears throat> for a human being. We were made body and soul, created body and soul. Uh, first, in fact, first body, then God breathes into us. There's a beautiful kind of reciprocity there. Soul dies first, and then, I mean, the, the body dies first, and then the soul returns to the divine. <clears throat> so Christus Victor was there from the beginning. You see it in Old English, and there you'll see kind of a warrior Christ who's at the gates of Haiti, who's willing to, you know, uh, I don't know how else, but he's willing to kick ass uh, and he takes over Satan and he destroys all of Hades. Once you get to the 14th century, say in the um, Corpus Christi pageants, for example, um, all of the Corpus Christi pageants, they all had the harrowing of Hades. And I may be mistaken, but I think, I think that was the only moment in Christ's life that finds itself in every single mystery play. Every Corpus Christi uh, play is the harrowing of Hades. That's how important it was. But depending on your region, Christ takes on a very different type of warrior going down into Hades. So, Anglo-Saxon, old English stuff. He's a warrior through and through. By the time you get to the 14th century, 15th century, like the York mystery play, he's a lawyer. He's arguing over the divine rights of all these souls who are in Hades. But but nevertheless, it's still the same. It is God saying, I created these souls for a purpose. They aren't yours. This is unnatural. They are mine. And I will, in fact, have them back. So that's the kind of Christus Victor uh, uh, narrative versus, you know, we can say the sacrificial narrative, which has always been there. It was there in Old English as well. It's just they didn't build a whole system on it. Mm. Uh, You have Christ, the illuminator, that is to say Christ, the teacher. Uh, This is probably, oh, I don't know, in the Middle Ages, probably made most famous by Peter Abelard systematically. That is the Imitatio Christi. Mm. If one wants to be saved... Just simply imitate Christ, do what he does, participate in the virtues in which he is the source in, in which he participated. Um, and then what I call kind of the incarnational or ontological, when God became man, he took on kind of that human nature, gave to us <clears throat> in response kind of that divinity Uh, Mary gave him our humanity, and in return, he gifted to us his divinity, that's also a language of salvation, Mm -hmm. uh, that kind of union, that language of union, which is what I focused on primarily uh, in in my talk. Um, But the Christus Victor just works perfectly in Old English literature because uh, Old English poetry is always looking back. So for anyone who's ever read old English poetry, know this, and I know it's going to ruin it for everybody. Forgive me for saying this, <laughs> but when you're reading it, say it's taking place, say the poem was written in 900, all of old English poetry is looking back to a more Germanic heroic ethos. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're looking back a few hundred years um, there is language in Old English poetry that you'll never find in its prose because it's being stylistically archaic uh, for aesthetic reasons. And I think probably for um, n- not just aesthetic reasons, but also for kind of maybe uh, uh, moral reasons. And I think certainly for religious reasons. And I think Christus Victor has a lot to do with that. Sorry. That was a long, that was a no, long, no,
0: to good. your, to your simple question. And some of that looking back, um, uh, kind of a folding in of, of time too is like to bring the old English, but to take it back to the Germanic. Yeah. Uh, and then it, it just, maybe I know this was the kind of the thrust of most of the talk, but just kind of, can you give a little differentiation on what, you would call the higher Christology where the focus shifts to.
1: Yeah. So, and it's not really shifts Um, in the ancient Well, you take someone like Maximus confessor, who's a Mm seventh century theologian. I think he's the greatest theologian who's ever lived. Um, So he's writing uh, about the same time as old English literature, but they didn't, they didn't have access to him. Um, You take someone like St. Irenaeus, right. So who's, much earlier than that, you know, he's a third century theologian. Uh, Saint Gregory of Nyssa, fourth century, one of the Cappadocian fathers. So, this idea of a union with Christ isn't something that I don't even want to say it, it's not something that develops. Mm-hmm. If you take who, and this may be scandalous to your viewers, forgive me, but if you take the greatest. Christian theologian of the ancient world who was origin, um, <laughs> beyond every, I mean, the Cappadocians loved him. They had their own selection of the philokalia, the love of beauty, the philokalia for the Cappadocian fathers was a collection of origins writings. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's there in origin, which means it's at the very beginning of kind of high theology in the Christian church. Um, What does union mean? Again, it is just a sort of an exchange. We can call it an exchange of properties. Mm The communicatio idiomatum is kind of the fancy theological language for it. That when God became man, he has imparted something to human beings Uh, And again, this is for for the ancient church via the mysteries of the church, via the sacrament of the church. Um, He is imparted to us, Christ has imparted to us a divine way of life. Um, So, you know, I think it always strikes my students as very odd, you know, if you give them a reading of, you know, one of the most famous biblical passages no one gets to the father, but through the son.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, just think about that. I'm sure most of your viewers understand that is a very, what would I say, exclusivist claim. That is to say, if you aren't Christian, if you aren't a professing Christian, if you don't believe in Christ, there's no way you're getting to the father. I don't want to rebut that claim in any way, shape or form. They can hold on to it, put it in their lap don't move from it. But there's also an ontological understanding. Ontological just comes from the Greek word ontos, which means being, just mm-hmm. means our very being, our very existence. The ontological reading would be something along the lines of no one gets to the father, but through the son, they would just state that as a basic anthropological fact, because the father is uncreated and mm-hmm. we have no access to him because of our created nature. There's nothing we can do to bridge the gap between the created and the uncreated. And so that the uncreated God and his beneficence and his generosity and his charity will to become man, to take on our nature, so that we have what? All of the important moments of the life of Christ, the incarnation. Which is taking on human nature, the baptism of Christ, which is you know if you ask people why did why was Christ baptized, it's usually you'd be shocked. It's a stumper because mm-hmm. baptism baptism baptismo means an immersion, right? It's a cleansing. Mm-hmm. Well, what did he have to be cleansed of? This is someone who's sinless. This is uh, uh, I mean right. literally, what is Christ being cleansed of? So you understand baptism is not that he's being cleansed, nor is it just simply some students will tell me, oh, he's creating a, a model for us. We should imitate him in being baptized. Great. I, I don't object to that. But there's a deeper ontological Place Here that St. Paul picks up on Christ became bad, he was baptized so that when we're baptized, we're baptized in the life of Christ. St. Paul makes this very clear. We're baptized into his death, plunged into that water, that image of chaos and death. Uh, uh uh of biblical imagery uh-huh. there's your death you're being buried there's what there's a reason why you're being submerged in that chaos and death you're tasting it you're tasting what Christ tasted and what what else does saint paul t- tell us you're resurrected in the life of Christ so incarnation takes on the human nature baptism is the what would i say it's the vehicle it's the route for us to be grafted into that life of Christ uh, he's crucified, dies for us on the cross. He tastes suffering. Uh, uh, he tastes humiliation. He can demonstrate for us forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. I mean, you want the most, you know, people focus a lot on all the various teachings of Christ and even the difficult teachings of Christ. My Kierkegaard's one of my favorite philosophers, but that's one of them right there. That's one of them. God, who's on the cross, forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do, knowing right. he's perfectly innocent, free of all any guilt they want to attach to him. So they're on the cross. Uh, the resurrection restores our human nature. As we talked previously, body and soul are separated. What does God do? God descends to Hades in his soul. It's resurrected back with his body. All the uh, uh, not all, but the disciples see it. Mm-hmm. They feed him. I mean, it's a very material concern, right? I'm always bothered when Christians aren't materialist enough, <laughs> right? We, we're kind of neo gnostics in many ways. No, no, no. Christ is like, put your finger in my put your finger in my right. body. Do you have something to eat? <laughs> Can a guy get a fish around here? I mean, this is <laughs> what he asks, right? Yeah. Can, can I have something to eat here? There's something quite material about this spiritual existence. And notice what I did there. It's not It's not the spiritual versus the material. There's something material in this spiritual existence. Mm-hmm. We can't create that dichotomy there any longer. Um, the one forgotten feast in most churches, Uh, Thank God I'm part of a a parish that's called Holy Ascension. But the ascension of Christ after 40 days, uh, who ascends to the right hand of the Father. The reason why I think that's so very important is because ascending at the right hand of the Father is sitting at that position of power. But not only that, we can go back to no one gets to the Father but through the Mm -hmm. Son. Right. He's sitting at the right hand of the Father in his, you know, in some ways, if you want to schematically map it out, he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. On the one hand, he shares the divine nature with the Father. On the other, he shares the human nature with us, which means we're united to God through the
0: Son.
1: That is to say, ontologically speaking, we can say it factually, I think, via the Nicene Creed, nobody gets to the Father but through the Son. I think it's just a basic existential ontological claim. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, of course, the descent of the Holy Spirit. We always forget about the Holy Spirit, full person of the Trinity, no less, no more full than the Father and the Son. It's just He's kind of the asterisk. He's the Trinitarian asterisk, I I suppose, is what we would say. But it's he who unites us to Christ. It's the Holy Spirit who inspires uh, Scripture itself. If the Holy Spirit inspires Scripture, then he's speaking to Christ as Christ is always testifying to the Father. Um, So that's kind of that more... Mm-hmm. ontological breaking down the barriers and you know don't get me started on creatio ex nilo right because if mm-hmm. if we started from nothing i like to say if we started for nothing from nothing and yet we're here then i'm sorry we started from something but that <laughs> something isn't a thing it's we started from someone
2: mm-hmm.
1: from the father through the son is all things created through the logo's everything has its low and this is just ripping off Maximus. <laughs> through the logos everything has its own logo its own inner essence right uh made in that image and likeness of, of 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 god so there's there's never not a participation in 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 the divine life
0: yeah you 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 went to that to those images of water a couple times um, and you know we talking about how we tend to focus on the the waters of life kind of images but yeah. for but it's also it's also the image of chaos and in not yeah. only in the semitic culture but in certainly in the other ancient cultures yeah, the Greeks yeah, and the course. romans and, and then you mentioned the other thing you mentioned along this christologically that that john is retelling genesis christologically yeah. um i wonder if you could give us just a, flesh that out just a little bit more for us yeah. how is he retelling uh, in this new light
1: Well, I mean, the prologue of John, from my perspective, is a magnificent recapitulation of the opening of Genesis in the beginning. I mean, look how John even begins this thing in the beginning uh, when God went about creating the heavens and the earth or in the beginning, God created however you want to translate the Hebrew, knock yourself out. Look what St. John's doing. Yeah, I mean, He's going back to in the beginning. In the beginning was the word. And the word was, with, it's not, it's not the spoken word. I mean, maybe there's playfulness because when God speaks, these things happen. Great, he's maybe being playful here, but I take this as a very theological testimony. So he's taking us back to the beginning, right? In the beginning was the word, and the word was, uh, was in fact, God. <clears throat> um. Which then tells us what I mean, this is this is profound, because what we understand is Christ was never not there. Um, I don't I don't know if your viewers are familiar with the Aryan controversy, um, um, but this passage actually proved pretty darn problematic for the Arians, they found their ways around it because they take in the beginning, time's already begun, God's already created, Christ is now there, right? Uh, and that's just kind of their position. Uh, uh, ultimately, the first ecumenical council kind of shot down that idea to say, no, there is, there was Christ even before the beginning. Um, and this, this to me is important because... Um, if Christ is there at the beginning and there's a telos, a, a purpose, an end, a beginning and an end towards the cosmos, then everything is going to be pointing towards Christ. It's what I just said. If we're created from nothing, mm-hmm. then we're created from someone. We're created from something. We have to change that to say someone. And, and St. John, is he's teasing all of this out for us there. So what does it mean? Well. Um, I think what it means for us is that with Christ we can say something positively about theology. Mm-hmm. if he's the econ if he's the icon, if he's the image of the Father, which is what Saint John says that he is, <clears throat> if he's the image of the Father, um then we can start saying very positive things about God now, uh, whereas before you had scripture to give you some guidelines as to who God was what God was doing God is all merciful compassionate you know you take you know you take Deuteronomy 34 right long suffering compassionate merciful desires the salvation of Israel and that's in scripture and that's mm-hmm. great scripture is certainly inspired by the holy spirit but if you're christian <laughs> And even if you go back to biblical times and you're, you know, you're, you're Jewish and Christian and you've been expecting a Messiah, which they did not assume was going to be God becoming man. So let's not mistake that uh, second temple Judaism, of course. Well, I shouldn't say, of course, it, many people don't know this second temple Judaism. They're wrestling with the question of divine powers. Was there simply? this kind of mono God who is just simply there. Um, yes, but no, because there's more of a, uh, you know, kind of a, uh, instead of a Trinitarianism in Second Temple Judaism, they clearly have a binaryism. There are two divine powers taken from the book of Daniel 7, 9, I won't go into all the history of that, but now what St. John is saying is we know the full revelation now of who that second divine power is. It's the Son of God who is in fact God, Um, and he gives us this great theological insight, and the reason why... Uh, metaphysically speaking, is that if Christ and God the Father share this and the Holy Spirit, but I'm just talking about Christ and the Father now, you can just bring the Holy Spirit along with it. If Christ and the Father share the same nature, then the will is a faculty of nature, which is to say whatever Christ does, whatever Christ wills, the Father is necessarily wills that same thing. They can't have two wills opposed to one another. Well, this is, I mean, this is a theologian's dream, because now you have an incarnate God who's actually doing divine things in front of you willfully. Again, if one uh, accepts that Christ is God, maybe one doesn't, he's a prophet, Uh, he's just a teacher, great. But if you're a Christian, you you accept mm-hmm. that Christ and the Father share the same nature, which means you have to accept they share the same faculty of will. Put all of that into context into John's uh, prologue.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> well, this is magnificent. That means all of creation is through Christ, and it's always pointing to Christ. Whatever God, and I'm speaking of a Trinitarian God now, <clears throat> what would I say, uh, ordains whatever he, uh, you know, whatever the providence of God is, is going to be found there in Christ and it's going to be found. this is a hard one to wrap one's head around. It's going to be found before the foundations of the earth, that all of the earth was created already with the vision of Christ's incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, and, and ascension. Mm-hmm. Everything was created already knowing that that's coming to pass hmm. okay so there's your prologue so on the one <laughs> hand it's a very theological statement and I think I made this point in the talk I don't I don't remember now I was just working from a couple of bar napkins with a little thing <laughs> sketched out on them um, <laughs> um, but the second thing that it, that is attached to this is it's also an anthropological statement. <clears throat> Because if he's fully human, if Christ is the new Adam, and we were sons of the old Adam, but in Christ we're sons of the new Adam, then what is that telling us? On the one hand, theologically, it's giving us insight, positive, direct insight about God, and simultaneously what that means um, uh, with regards to what it means to be human, so that when, you know pilot comes out and says, you know, AKA homo behold the man. I mean, this is stunning to me. This shows you what it means to be human. What it means to be human is to empty yourself, to offer yourself to the world, not worrying about, am I right? Do people see that I'm not a fool? Do people not see that I'm not a criminal? He didn't care about any of that. Um, it is it is a full giving of oneself to others. No greater love has man than this than to lay down his life for his fellow man. But the new Adam demonstrates that for us. So the eke homo is behold the man, which is to say pedagogically, behold yourselves. This is what you're you are created for. And then when Christ on the cross says it is finished, hmm. um, I take that as kind of the whole idea of. This is the whole vocation of of humans.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It is finished. I've done everything i can I can do. Um you know, whenever I quoted Julian of Norwich when she says, when she's imagining christ as as mother, he says, "If I could have suffered more,
2: mm-hmm. I
1: would have done so.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think she's meditating upon the it is finished. There's no more. there's nothing more Christ as mother could have done for us. To do what? And now I'm using Julian's language to give birth to us as human beings who were created. And this is where kind of my Q&A kind of went in that direction. We were created to be partakers of the divine nature, to quote St. Peter. That's it. And he's actually carved out that space for us as Christ the Illuminator. There's one of your models of atonement. Via Christ, the sacrifice, a Mm self-sacrificial individual, mm -hmm. Um, Christ victor, conquering those things. And then the ontological, when you live in such a way, being united to Christ, you actually become Christ bearers. Mm -hmm. Um, um, It it, it seems to me that St. John is tapping into this precisely. And I take him as a a brilliant theologian, Um, uh, a wonderful book on all of this is by um, John Baer. Um, it's an expensive book, so uh, your, your viewers are going to have to forgive me here. It's called John the Theologian in His Postal Gospel. Um, I, gosh, I think it's by, I think it's Oxford University Press. It's magnificent. He goes through uh, all of this um, um, in, in far more detail. Uh, than than I can hear, but but I think I think the Gospel of John is very much it's crucial to this ontological understanding. And let me also say this, and again, um, for a lot of your viewers, this will probably be scandalous. But in the ancient church, um, the main path towards that ontological union it would have been through the mysteries, the sacraments of of the church but in primarily baptism and 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 the eucharist because there's something ontological that happens there one's grafted onto Christ if one believes in the real presence of the body and blood then one really is taking god into themselves christ abides in you you abide in in, in uh in in christ and i think that's for me, I think that's the background of 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 the Gospel of John.
0: Yeah, that that I mean, you're, I'm reminded of something else you touched on that your students sometimes struggle with that or mistake that the "I am finished" is a eschatological statement, um, and we and we tend to want to view everything uh, as a history. Yeah, it's um, it still it's, it's, yeah, still going. So we fulfilled scripture, right? I'm yeah, done. yeah. Well, I want to sh- take a chance here to kind of shift toward the the works you brought up in the in the yeah. talk, and I was going to start with a starting point that another thing you mentioned that is tougher for us as moderns um, but that Dante accepts on on its face is that there are no individuals right and the medieval mm-hmm. Christian uh, shares that with kind of the Semitic culture that maybe even differed from how the ancient Greeks and, and Romans used yes. things. Not um, maybe, definitely. So so maybe that would be the best place to start then. Like what's that distinction between the Semitic and medieval Christian, Semitic culture and medieval, medieval Christian and say like the ancient philosophers uh, of the Greeks?
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't think, I don't think there's a separation between the Semitic and the medieval culture at all whatsoever. I okay. think the medieval culture, um, again, This is. I'm just speaking large. I mean, medieval, from 500 to 1500, from Spain to England. That huge gap. That's a. This is this is a great book. uh, Skip. So we're skipping tons of little, very minor things, but in general, um, I think this is true, and I think it's true in both. Well, not just. I I think it's true in any high churches. Theology, you have to work very hard to work around any sort of corporate, and I mean body, not corporate in terms of how we understand corporate um, um, uh, 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 identity. And, And why? Well, if we call ourselves Christians, just stop for a moment and think about what that means. You're naming yourself via Christ, which means. You don't name yourself mm-hmm. you were you were named at a certain point most Christians um, in the ancient world I mean it's true with my papu and my yaya um, whatever date you were born on that's pretty much okay, who's the saint that day there's your name, baby. <laughs> Your birthday and your names, they are one and the same. You're not going through and arguing. What what are we choosing here? Mm-hmm. You know, this changes, of course, you know, oh, you know, you have to be named. The, the first son has to be named after his, you know, his father. OK, great. But even if that's the case, even if that goes over time, you're still going to be named John. You're still going to be named James. You're going right. to be named, you know, uh, uh, you know. Um, I suppose Barsanufius fell out of favor, um, <laughs> but, but, but nevertheless, you really aren't named in and of yourself. You were always named according to someone else in somebody else's life, be it by accident the day on which you were born, or, or be it by purpose that your parents... Uh, loved a certain saint and dedicated you to that saint. Uh, even new Christians who are coming into the church, they get baptized, they get chrismated, um, you know, go, go find yourself a saint. Uh, and, and study their lives. So there's something there to say we aren't ourselves, we are part of this great cloud of witnesses. And even in Hebrews, what does it say? It says, it goes through all the list of what the saints had done, sawed asunder, women had lost their children, and they were brought back via resurrection. But what does it say? They're all waiting for us To be perfected. Mm -hmm. That means there's a participation going on, not just in our world, but in that great cloud of witnesses waiting to be perfected via us. And it's not just us in contemporary times. It's via the us who is living inside the body of the church. Notice what I just said there. The body of the church. Well that's mm-hmm. what I mean by a corporate personhood. Um, that everything is always relational. And it I mean look marriage, relational. Baptism. Mother and father do not baptize their children. They have godparents who are standing there. Why? Well, it's an extended family now. The Mm -hmm. child, you know, this is a, it's both, what would I say? It's both a relief and it's horrifying Mm -hmm. uh, as a parent, and you know this, that the child isn't actually ours alone. Right. I mean, good Lord. I mean, we're raising a child. I I hate to even utter these words because it's so, it condemns me. We raise a child for God. Mm -hmm. It's not ours. It's just kind of ours Mm -hmm. as a placeholder. Mm. Raising that child for God? Well, here, God parents, this is what you do. You right. help us to raise that child. Of course, it was born out of persecutions, lest the, the parents are killed. Uh, they have someone to raise the child so that the child doesn't go off into servitude, prostitution, whatever the case mm. may be, um, which is horrifying. But sure, we still have that. And we don't worry about those things, but it is still something there that the godparents are acting as models, someone who grants support for that child. Well, well, I mean, just we work through this. I mean, you know, I think I brought up, I think I brought up at the talk. I mean, my being named father to my children is not something I bring to them. It's something they bring to me. I was never a father Hmm. until... My child was born, and I don't get to even name myself father. It's just simply by dint of my child being born. I have been named into this. Yeah. But ultimately, I think, I think what I'm trying to get at is that we are born into a responsibility. But it's a responsibility that there aren't rules and laws that tell us any parent can tell you this. It would be nice if we just had blueprints and what to expect when you're expecting what to expect the toddler years. Let's check these off. I've been looking for like
0: 18, 20 years now. Yeah.
1: Any of us who've gone through it, who like our book learning, we learn very quickly. Yeah, that it's a great resource. So I'm not bad mouthing it. I needed it. I loved it. And yet, oh baby, it did not do what I needed it to do because there's something that's not programmatic about this. Right. That that my children keep revealing things about myself. They keep I don't know, dictating in some ways who I am. Um, and so when I say responsibility, I mean that in kind of its very literal etymology from from the French, right? Uh, Répondez to respond. A responsibility takes someone else kind of calling you out of yourself, calling you out of that individualism, right? I mean, you know, uh, uh, when we get home from a hard day of work, or an easy day of work whatever the case may be we come home and it's like can i not just get some alone time right yeah can i just be by myself and it turns out you can never really be by yourself because even when your children go sure dad be by yourself you know especially my office <laughs> the window goes out to the basketball court and i see them out there balling and it's like okay okay I can't do this. Right. I, I can't do it. I I've been by I've been doing work and my children are calling me out even through being respectful, even while they're out there. I can't not go out there uh, with yeah. them. and And I think that's very fundamental to if you want to know anything about kind of biblical anthropology, I think it's key. Just go Mm -hmm. look at Adam and Eve. I mean, that that teases everything out there um, with regards to kind of personhood.
0: And it's just and and you mentioned that it's just kind of it's more the assumed state of the world for these medieval writers. Um, And so I don't want to you you know you mentioned in your talk that most people are probably less familiar with the pearl, and you kind of you kind of gave us a summary of the story. So I don't I don't want to get into too much of that. People can go back and listen to the talk, and I think that was sure. really wonderful walking through that. Um, but with both uh, the pearl and with Dante, you you touch on this concept, uh, which I think flows out of this. There's no individual, the great chain of being that both yeah, of yeah. those those both those works, of poems, uh, kind of give us. Uh, so yeah. you can just kind of give a some more explanation on, on the great chain of being and how it kind of is in medieval poetry in particular.
1: Sure. I mean, I mean, if you, if you just take St. Paul's analogy, I guess I'll call it that. Although biblical literature has to get beyond analogy. There's gotta be something literal there, but when he talks about we're all the body of Christ and how can a finger kind of, um, um, be angry at the arm. That's what the Pearl poet's getting into. Mm-hmm. So what that means is, you know, when we go to church, um, every human being you see there, <laughs> even the ones that irritate the hell out of <laughs> you, even the ones, and let's just go further than that. The ones you despise, you need to stop it. Because they're part of your body. They're actually part of you. For those who are in a higher church who are taking communion, there's a reason why. Um, The first thing you have to do is go reconcile yourself to your brothers and sisters. If you've pissed someone off, if someone's pissed you off, it's not a matter of, I need to give you this list of what you've done wrong to me. No, no. I think a Christian perspective is more something along the lines of, forgive me. Mm -hmm, mm
2: -hmm.
1: Forgive me. That's it. You've got two words that you go and say. You have to reconcile yourself. Well, why? Well, because we ought not be angry. Great. But why? Why should we not be angry? Well, because we're all about to participate in the body of Christ. Being the body of Christ. If we're taking Saint Paul's language seriously, then we can't be at enmity and we, we can't be at one. I mean, Christ makes this very clear that the, the the bare necessity for offering something at the altar in the temple is reconciling yourself. And you can go back to Genesis chapter four with Cain and Abel. Mm-hmm. When when God comes to Cain, he says, Look a uh, uh, sin crouches at your tent flap mm-hmm. for you as it's longing cain wasn't cain wasn't only upset by the fact god didn't accept his sacrifice god didn't accept his sacrifice because he knew the enmity in cain's heart i'll say it again he didn't he didn't reject cain's sacrifice Right, F- because of the object. Mm-hmm. In fact, in the poem, God says, Whether you offer well or whether you do not. In other words, the object makes no difference to me. Right. I- I'm not Zeus, <sighs> I'm not Marduk. I'm not Baal. I'm not going to be influenced by these things. All of this is only about you people. It's not about me. Whether you offer well or whether you do not, sin crouches at the tent flap. And for you is its longing. He knew Cain harbored enmity against his brother. And what does that mean? I think the New Testament reads that scene perfectly. What he's saying is you can't offer an offering like that. You you can't participate in sacrifice because sacrifice isn't about me and God. This is where I think Americans, where we can't wrap our heads around. It's not about me and God. It's about me and you and you and you and you and you and God. Why? Because we're the body of Christ. Hmm. Um, And so in that way, the idea of having a corporate personhood, then you can see, you know, in in the Middle Ages, we get the word envy, one of the seven vices. Um, We get it from the word invidia. Invidia doesn't mean what we think it means. Uh, We always think of of envy as kind of coveting something. Mm -hmm. That's not what it meant in the ancient world in the Middle Ages. NVIDIA, um, so what we think of, of uh, with regards to envy is what they would take as um, uh, a um kind of greed,
2: right? <laughs> um,
1: envy in the Middle Ages in the ancient world meant um, suffering, uh, uh, suffering when something good happens to another person wanting something bad to happen or rejoicing schadenfreude rejoicing Mm. when something good happens to them that's an and you can see oh that is nefarious when you want your brother to have something bad happen to them or you feel bad because something good happens to them Mm. uh, that is a disruption in the body of christ itself so and you know i exist in the ancient world in the medieval world so for me and you know i'm also christian and read the bible um for me the idea of just an individual qua individual um uh really makes very little sense to me in in a what would i say in an entire theology i love kierkegaard one of my favorites but he is an individual's individual. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah, But he's
1: taught me a lot about myself because it's not as if I'm not isolated. It's not as if I don't wake up at two in the morning thinking about myself and consumed with myself. Of course, that's the case. Of course. But once we break free of mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. kind of introspection, where am I in this world? Now, all yeah. of a sudden... The whole world opens up, and you realize I am not an island unto myself. You know, I like to tell, you know, most college students if we can get them to that Kierkegaardian angstiness, yeah, we've done our jobs like you can't imagine. And (laughs) then you tell them, wait till you get to the other side and you realize it's not just you baby.
0: Yeah. yeah.
1: Uh it's you in relation with all of these others. Then things start to 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 open up quite a bit.
0: You're still really in that state of illness at that point, right? Spiritual illness when it's, it was just me. And It's only I in that think state so. of beginning I mean, to heal.
1: Not yeah. for Kierkegaard. No, but for but me I yeah. think that's I think that's I think that's the case. Yeah. yeah. And and I shouldn't I don't want to God forbid I I speak ill of him because I don't mean to. Right. In, in Kierkegaard's works of love, he works through all of this. I just assume most people know him from his sickness unto death. Sure. In his fear and trembling is his most famous work, where it really is that individual coming to grips with their own faith and their own relationship uh, with God. And And for me, we have two great commandments, and it's not... 90% love your God with all your soul, all your heart, mm-hmm. all your strength. Uh, oh, by the way, yeah. there are people around you, too. Right. No, no, no. It's a hundred percent both. Right. I think Scripture makes that very clear. You cannot hate your brother uh, and love and love God. Yeah. Uh, you cannot. You cannot love God and hate your brother. It's an impossibility. Um, <clears throat> which means one has to humble oneself. One has to humiliate oneself. Um, right. Because human beings, you know, um, we're a nasty brood. And uh, it's hard to love us sometimes. It's hard to love those human beings out there. Um, And guess who would know this better than anyone else? But God. (laughs) uh, When when he creates us, he knows, well, here's a piece of work. And I'm using work nicely there. (laughs) This is a family program. Here's a piece of work. Uh, Good luck with that one uh but but thank god we have we have those individuals out there to actually teach us what it means to love
0: and and, is, and so that's what you see like in Dante when he's talking about the, the the vices envy it's much more in that state of yeah
1: so yeah i think that's exactly it. you know part of my talk was i was just focusing on purgatorio and kind mm-hmm. of that heavenly bliss and all of that was predicated upon we can't I mean, it's the opposite of envy mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, when when, in the heavenly realm when we see our brother there and you're like, and I'll just use our euphemism here. Well, that guy was a real piece of work in this world. <laughs> here he is. You don't go. How would he get here? And why am I in? Why am I even seeing this guy? Why am I not above? No, no, no. Dante right. and the pro poet are both saying. What a delight and a joy it is to see that person here. It's the opposite of NVIDIA. Mm-hmm, those, mm-hmm. those greatest pieces of work in this world, if they're in the heavenly realm, what grace! Re- what great rejoicing there is for that sort of thing. And that sort of bliss and that joy that we take from others is then reciprocated. Right. Because, you know, um, I, I suppose once your viewers get old enough, you'll realize that every time you see a certain person in this world as is, is occupying a certain space, Oh, that person is X. That person is Y. That's the person you have to tolerate just mm-hmm. do whatever you need to realize you're a member of that alphabet <laughs> and you better, <laughs> you, be, <laughs> you, you, better, you better pray that people will treat you with the charity and the individual love that it takes to love all of those very different people on that on that spectrum, because mm-hmm. it's hard. It's very, very difficult. But never forget, never forget that Christ welcomed Peter back.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Peter denied him, uh, and, and Christ is there with Peter the entire time. He, and not only that, but Christ is, tells him what he's going to do. And not only it's even I mean, I love I love the whole story of St. Peter. It's it's miraculous to me because if if everyone should pay attention to this pattern in Scripture, St. John always recognizes and St. Peter always goes over the top, which is fantastic. (laughs) Right. Uh, When they're in the boat, St. John, it says St. John recognized him. And Saint Peter's the one who jumps into the water and swims to. When they come to the tomb, who was the first one there? Saint John. He stops. Saint Peter's like, to hell with any of these restrictions about being around the dead. I'm because you would not want to violate clean laws. Saint Peter runs into the tomb. It's beautiful. And and what does that mean? It just means Christ meets us where we are. We're created in a certain way. You know, I get students all the time. I have that online course on the on the David story. You know, I get people emailing all the time. How could how can scripture say David was a man after God's heart? Mm-hmm. And, and I cheat, I'll be honest. I cheat and I always ask them, have you read the Psalms? <laughs> <laughs> and all I mean by this is. My goodness, this guy on the surface in his narrative may be a piece of work, but read his psalms. He seems to be very clear about what he's doing and he repents and he turns back to God. He, He comes to a certain point in his life and he realizes God is my fortress. God is my shield. God is my buckler. All of these mistakes I made. Yes, I get it. He foreknew these things. He already Mm. knew what I was going to do before I did it. And nevertheless, here I am. And he could have snapped his anthropomorphic fingers and just eliminated me, given me a heart attack. So I stopped sinning, but he didn't. And if he didn't do that, then Mm -hmm. what is it that I'm supposed to be doing with my relationship uh, 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 to the divine? That's a that's a long way of straying from your initial question, what does it have to do with others? But as soon as one sees oneself in Scripture, and one sees other people as part of Scripture, and all I mean by that is we all screw up and God foreknows all of it, and all these desires is that we're all saved, and all of this world is but temporary, then why do we get caught up in the the, the, the work of this world <laughs> yeah. I just keep using the word work for, uh, for every expletive I'm going to use. <laughs> I'll just use the word work.
0: <laughs> well, we've been talking about the, that, that great chain of being primarily in the, in the, the difficult side of it, right. For us temporally here yeah. now, yeah. Uh, you focus a lot on it in the talk because of the two yeah. poems on what that looks like. You, know, like you said, on the other side, whereas this great chain of being in, in yeah. a glorified way, which led me to my, one of my, uh, My nerdier questions about translation. You just, you mentioned the word arrende in Dante, and you said that it's um, uh, usually translated reflection.
1: Reflection. But
0: you like the word refraction. So I I want to give you a chance to kind of.
1: I think in Italian, I think it, gosh, if I'm, uh, I, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken, it just means a presentation, Mm-hmm. So it can mean a reflection, but of course you know a ref- refraction is presentation as well. So what's the difference between a reflection mm-hmm. and a refraction? Yeah, um, it would be. I suppose it would just be something as simple as what would I say? Um, I don't. I don't see reflection. If I'm going to take it physically, I don't see reflection as quite as participatory. Mm -hmm. Um, As I do refraction, refraction is when light goes through something and that something is then rendered on the other side. Reflection is it bounces off of something and then we can see. So refraction for me seems to be far more participatory so that when I think of, you know, when I think of my dear friends uh, at church, at school, et cetera. In their best moments, not their worst, obviously, but in their best moments, I do like to think they aren't simply reflecting Christ, Christ bouncing off of them in their actions and their deeds. I like to think of them as Christ permeating them mm. and kind of coming coming out. Mm. I, I guess my position would be, um, and again, it's just a matter of language, right? Mm. We're talking about a single Italian word, and, I, and I'm playing with it. But I think there is some theological significance here. We aren't just rendering Christ. If I really wanted to take the Italian word seriously, we aren't rendering Christ. Um, um, A a refracting of Christ is something like, he's come to me and I'm offering him to you. Mm. Um, I think that is a full-throated Christian life. So that's all I meant there, Uh, especially in Purgatorio when they say, you know, uh, the love comes to those with the equal amount of love that they have. And then you give that thing forward. If anyone reads Saints Lives, you know, you know, refraction is a much more accurate way of talking about saints than mm-hmm. reflection, because they aren't just simply reflecting Christ. The, those refracting deeds. Okay. It's as if it's Christ uh, him, himself.
0: I'm I'm gonna keep that in mind when I'm reading those in the future. Um, you touched on something I want to switch over to to Julian of Norwich. You mentioned it a little while ago and also in your talk um a lot, uh, this idea of Christ as mother, um, which I think you mentioned it certainly in the talk that maybe we're less comfortable with. Um, and maybe even uh maybe that's even putting it mildly, we're not as comfortable with that language. We tend to focus on, you know, God as father and son. Um But that it's important theologically, uh, and you mentioned that many of the theologians use this imagery. So uh, if you could just kind of take us into that a little bit and what its importance is and how maybe some of the other theologians, in addition to Julian, kind of talk about that.
1: Yeah, so um, the theologians throughout history have always understood Scripture as speaking about God. That's important. About God. Because to say kind of the essence of God or to use metaphysical language of God, at least in the ancient medieval world, everyone knew that's kind of an impossibility. Mm-hmm. Even the greatest proponents of what's known in theological language is actus purus. And their fundamental uh, pure act, God is pure act whatever god is is or whatever god does is who he is right but even at that fundamental level even those theologians who are proponents strictest proponents of actus purus in all of their works there was always an apophatic asterisk which is to say i'm going to say this but i have to use language to say it And language can't encompass God in any way, (laughs) so (laughs) they even know what I'm about to do doesn't quite do what I'm trying to do here. All right. Well, if that's the case, then you know all of theology really is about God. Again, technical term, ad extra. God as he comes out to the world, the economical God. God. Uh, which is opposed to God at intra, God mm-hmm. as he is in and of himself. So, for example, you could ask something like this, and my kids have asked me, you know, if you listen to, uh, if you recite the Nicene Creed, right, <clears throat> Christ is begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father, right, and the Son, if you're, Coming from a Western tradition. Great. Well, kids, my kids always want to know hey, what's the difference between being begotten and proceeding? <laughs> it's a great question, it's a fantastic question. To which I just quote St. Basil and I say God only knows. <laughs> That's the answer. There isn't anything that that relationship is just a demarcation of their unique personhood. The Son is begotten, the Holy Spirit proceeds. What's the difference? God only knows. We can't speak of those things. Ad intra, as God exists in and of Himself and knows Himself in and of Himself, and I know I've—if you have any strict manual Thomists who listen to this—I'm driving them crazy right now uh, because they've got language for this. Um, uh, but in the Middle Ages, I argue, they, they they don't. They're quite aware of the of the role of language in this, which doesn't mean they don't take it seriously. Mm-hmm. They take it very seriously, and they want to be very precise. And yet they know that there's always going to be that slight hiccup. Okay, if that's the case, then all of Scripture is open to us. So whenever Christ is a hen gathering her chicks— That's what the Christ as mother is coming from. You also have Wisdom of Solomon. You have uh, Language of Motherhood. Uh, In Isaiah, you have Language of God as as mother as well. So there are scriptural foundations for it. But for these theologians to play off of it, um, you know, why would they do this when we have Father, Son, Holy Spirit? This is masculine language. Well, they're not making a Trinitarian statement. They're making a soteriological statement about God's relationship to human beings at extra Hmm. in an economical sense, because that's what Scripture is trying to do. Right. If not, then we're in we're in big trouble because all the metaphors used throughout Scripture uh, is is, you know, heaven like a pasture. Is Christ both the gate and the shepherd? Uh, are, are there many mansions? Are there lots of rooms? Is there a dungeon? <laughs> I, I mean, we can just keep going on and on because that's how language functions. We try to approximate the aboutness of the revelation of these things. And I'm sure the gospel writers, when they had these revelations from the Holy Spirit, they can only put it into language people would mm. understand. It just seems to me to be basic and simple. If you have a child, right, if my children at a certain age are asking me really difficult theological questions, and it turns out children ask really difficult theological questions, you have to make analogies. You have to talk to them about things that they know. Mm -hmm. Um, and, And so you go from there. So what does that mean? Well, Christ is mother, actually, I mean, again, it's not very controversial, and I find it to be beautiful. And what Julian's trying to do is say something along the lines of, God came in this world to give us birth to eternal life. If you're a Christian and you can't affirm that, then I'm going to say you're probably not a Christian. If you can't say Christ came into this world, to give us birth to new life. Hmm. I don't know what to tell you because he did. And we have all sorts of mechanisms for what this new life looks like, but there's a reason he was called the old Adam and now the new Adam. Um, So that's the first thing that Julian is talking about that. He took on the old Adam and was a, upon the cross. She sees the cross as his labor pains. Hmm. Well, what's his labor pains? Well, his labor pains are to do what? Every labor pain is to give birth to new life in this world. Hmm. She's saying that's what Christ did for us. He went through those labor pains. He take, And not only that, but in the Middle Ages, my goodness, if you're pregnant, it's a potential death sentence. Hmm. Like any of you listeners, if you were born cesarean section, I was. You were if you weren't dead in the Middle Ages, your mother clearly was. And that's just caesarean section. Even normal birth, you're gonna die. Not absolutely, but you have a good risk just simply because of infections. Mm-hmm. We don't think much of it because we have penicillin. We have hospitals. Mm-hmm. We just take care of you run a fever. Oh, you just have an infection. Here, here's some antibiotics, and you're good to go. Not in the middle ages. were pregnant and then it's like okay here it comes i'm giving birth to this new life in this world and julian makes note of that and not only that but she says our mothers give birth to us unto death i mean that's 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 dark stuff i mean Mm -hmm, it's true mm -hmm. but that's dark stuff she's making an you know, I like to think Camus and Sartre would be on board with Julian of Norwich, <laughs> right? We're just these Heidegger. What Julian is saying is that we're just beings unto death. Right. Heidegger is like, yes, that's exactly right, Julian. But her point is, is that Christ and His labor on the cross mm. does not give birth to us unto death, but gives birth to us unto life. Sure, we taste death. But it's not as if death has been vanquished, death has been transformed. And that's a really important distinction between the two. If we go back to Christ's victory, it's not right, simply right. death has been crushed. We've we've eliminated it. It's not that. It's we've taken it and we've make we've made it something else. And this just comes from St. John, right? Hmm. Lest a grain of wheat fall into the ground. It has no life.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: This is this is our existence, um, um, which is really an odd thing to think about—a fear of death in the Christian world. What are we even? That that just seems insane to me. We can lament death, of course, but a fear of death. <laughs> Yeah, Uh, That just seems to be a non-starter. So all she's doing here is trying to give you, and I think it's a very beautiful metaphor of Christ as mother, because usually the language of mother is always reserved for, um, um, I'll just say two individuals, the Theotokos Mary, of course, but also the church. The church is the mother. Great, but what's Christ? He's the body of the church. (laughs) Uh, He's the very life source of the church. He's the head, St. Paul tells us, he's the head of the body, which is the church. Um, So I I think we're really anyone who objects to the language of Christ as mother just hasn't thought through the analogy Mm -hmm. very closely. Uh, as you pointed out, it's found in the ancient church, the medieval church, Anselm of Canterbury, Augustine, uh, Clement, um, uh, Origin. It, it's really not anything that is scandalous at all, uh, what whatsoever. It's actually a. I find it to be a very, very helpful analogy, and she goes further because, of course, she sees Christ is nourishing us through the Eucharist.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: From the from the from the wound on his side, which she sees as an image of breastfeeding. Sure. Um, um, And yes, of course, our nourishment comes from the Eucharist, of course. So uh, and like I said, I mean, you know, um, some modern scholarship sees her as being you know radical or subversive or whatever you know punching against the patriarchy which may be the case but i only know one thing the patriarchy is that which had to look at her writings to release them yeah. and i can't imagine anything the patriarchy saw as problematic and and julian and i'm only guessing here uh, i think julian it was theoretically a universalist um theoretically Practically, she was not because she would say, "I can't wrap my head around how everyone isn't saved, and yet the church teaches they aren't." Hmm. She's like, "I don't." For yeah. her, the greater mystery was how does the church teach that, and not that she's opposed to it; she affirms it. Uh, for her, the great mystery was anyone would would be in hell uh, yeah. based on her, you know, ontological principles of that. Uh, the Middle English word. I won't translate it. Substance, substance that's yeah. never not united with, with, with the divine. So
0: yeah, you mentioned that 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 substance and the and the senses um, in the talk too, and then and then went on to talk a little bit about how she presents everything in a, in a vernacular theology, um, yeah. and how that's uh, a little bit different from from most, the, at least. It, um, but can you talk a little bit about why? what the benefit of it is, what the difference is there when she comes in with a vernacular theology.
1: Sure. And it's not just Julian. I think Dante falls into this realm as well, right? Um, And the reason why is um, because the only access, well, that's not true. So the primary access one has to any theology is a life of prayer. And all I mean by that is just that sort of way of silence or prayer in which you're united to God and there's something that's there beyond the language. Okay. So that's the primary, you know, um, um, many saints have said, you know, that the true theologian is the one who prays. Great. So I want to bracket that. Now let's talk about poetry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and, And, and this is what poets do and vernacular poets, they're trying to translate these theological concepts without going to the Latin in in the West, mostly Latin, not the Greek at all. But not relying on the Latin, um, and I think this is in, I think this is uh, important for scholars and for anybody um, because they're trying to help us in our own tongue get to their own experience of the divine, right? So um, so someone who's, you know, um, working in the Greek, the, it's kind of easy because they've always had that language. In the Greek, you know, g- Greek language and theology in the ancient church, they were borrowing from philosophy quite a bit. Right. And then they would just repackage it. But that created tons of problems like hupostasis. We call it personhood hupostasis. And well, they fixated upon that because it also meant essence. Hmm. So, no, we believe, you know, there's an essence in an essence. Well, how do you do that in English? I mean, and I think we're farther away in English than we can be in Greek, because Mm -hmm. in English we say, well, there's essence and there's personhood. The Greeks had a much more intimate understanding of -hmm. those two things of between essence and hypostasis. So there's some advantages to the original language, disadvantages to the vernacular, But let's just talk about one of the advantages between essence and and personhood. They have nothing to do with one another. (laughs) So what does it do? It it creates a clear separation for us. And then we have to kind of walk that back. Hmm. Well, if you're doing vernacular theology, that's pretty much what you're doing. You're speaking about God, but you're speaking it in languages. Christ as mother is a prime example. Right. I mean, I, I, I don't know about you, but whenever I hear mother, it does not, it does not conjure bad images in my mind at all. Hmm. It's very nurturing. Um, it's someone I could always turn to. Uh, someone who loved me unconditionally, no matter hmm. what rotten things I had done. So, so, and even using that language of a mother... It's like, oh, that's that's actually really, really nice. Um, we have access to all of these things. Well, look, just think about this. What were we just talking about? What was the Italian? Rende, render. All right, so we render unto others our thing. And you're like, oh, all right. Well, how are we gonna actually translate that from the Italian into the English? Well, render seems to be pretty weak. I mean, that seems pretty legalistic, doesn't it? Well, let's do reflection. Okay, I like reflection. That's nice. It's better than render.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Oh, well, let's do refract. You understand what I'm trying to get at. Yeah, yeah. Even if I'm translating Dante's Italian to our own 21st century vernacular, I'm going to be choosing very, very carefully what is the word that I want that is going to come closest to – here we go – rendering – <laughs> uh, uh that theological insight for my readers in our mother tongue hmm. um and, and I think it gives us i think it gives us kind of beautiful insights to where they're coming from so julian uses so much domestic language it's mind-blowing with her high christology using, very I don't want to call it lowly language, but it's pretty lowly language. It's just the everyday. Mm-hmm. Um uh, Ephraim the Syrian is also pretty famous for fourth century okay. uh Syriac Christian. Um he uses a Very similar language to Julian. She likes clothing and knitting imagery. So does Ephraim. Um, so, so they and he uses it in Syriac. So that would have been a, a, a vernacular language uh, for him at the time. And you know, you have to realize all the Greeks writing in the ancient church. It turns out theirs was a vernacular language.
2: Right. right Greek
1: right. is just the language that's spoken. You know, if I'm a fourth century Greek and I see hupostasis. I'm thinking of my buddy who makes wine down the road, and hupostasis in 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 uh in winemaking is kind of the uh, uh, the dregs of the grapes that sit at the bottom of a. Ca- so just think about that for a moment with regards to personhood. Mm. It's that which gives the wine its wineness. Those dregs. That's why hupostasis doesn't mean personhood the way we try to do it in the vernacular right. now, it means of the essence, hmm. something that is from the essence. Um, well, that's spectacular if you're Greek and you understand, oh, it means essence, but not essence the way Usia does. Um, and so we're always doing it. The Hebrew Bible, I mean, you think that's not in the vernacular? Of course that's in the vernacular. Hmm. Biblical Hebrews is right there in that ancient Hebrew language that stayed pretty stable for centuries they're writing in the vernacular you know um um there's a reason i think that you know um when god knows israel it's the same verb when adam knows his wife and Mm -hmm. they have a child it just means there's a certain level of of intimacy there we understand the nose from adam to eve right but when we read it in english it goes and god knew israel (laughs) Well, we can't help it. We are so analytical. Nothing wrong with that, by the way. We're thinking of God anthropomorphically knowing these things. But the Hebrew Bible is in God knew Israel. It means he intimately knew them, which means he knows you in ways that go beyond that sort of thing that we kind of lose uh uh in in that vernacular in our own vernacular of 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 to know mm-hmm. um i don't know what the whole translation project would look like <laughs> if one undertook that peeling it up, apart but i think that's what um uh, the vernacular does for us it gives us a chance to speak to our contemporaries in theological ways that were never not This is important that we're never not analogical. Um, Mm -hmm. What we're trying to do is break down the barriers to say the Greek was never not analogical. The Hebrew was never not analogical. The Latin was never not analogical. And it turns out our language is never not analogical. Mm -hmm. We've just got to recreate what that analogy means for us. I mean, for us, the idea, you just think about it. I have to imagine, unless you're part of a great parish community, when you get any gospel text that says, you know, the kingdom of heaven is like having a great wedding feast, we don't know what the hell they're talking about. What does that even mean? And not only that, but why aren't you wearing the right clothes? The ancient world, they would have understood everything of being provided with the clothing, and et cetera. Mm-hmm. They would have known what it meant to be in a seat based upon your social hierarchy they would have known man if you're just some sort of scrub in the community and you're getting that meal eat up baby right i mean we eat chicken now without bones and skin that ain't (laughs) happening in the ancient world i mean are you kidding me that's not happening in any way, shape, or form. Hell, you're gonna you're gonna sneak the bones away if you can, so <laughs> you can go make some good stock out of that. Yeah. So I, I hope you see what I'm I'm trying to get at here. That that it is try language is always the vehicle through which we try to communicate theological realities for our contemporaries, Mm -hmm, right? mm -hmm. Um, um, And and that's really important, which doesn't mean that language... I'll say this. Language, whatever the language is, if we take it seriously, ought to always be symbolic. The problem is, is that when somebody says, oh, that's just symbolic, what they mean is it's not real. It's actually pretend, Which is the exact opposite of what symbolic meant in the Greek. Symbol means a bringing together. Mm -hmm. So what you're trying to do is you're trying to take created language to manifest a metaphysical spiritual reality. That's all you're trying to do. For any of your listeners who know iconography, they're all symbolic. How? They have a grammar. The grammar, it's not representational. It's not trying to give you a real depiction of things. It's always symbolic. It's always trying to give you a physical uh, manifestation of a symbolic reality, right? Do you know what the opposite of symbol is? And this, this should Scare the hell out of people. The opposite of symbolic is diabolical. Mm. Diabolical means to render asunder, Mm. (laughs) to break up language and that metaphysical reality. Can we understand that um, any language we use um, is always arbitrary given its time and place? Yes, of course. Of course. We call it rock. They called it Petro's. Either word is an arbitrary understanding of what rockness is. Nevertheless, we use those things in a whole system of meaning, which is supposed to reveal to us, open for us, that space of a metaphysical or spiritual reality for for ourselves. So um, obviously I'm very involved in kind of what I think is the importance of of the vernacular. um, I I I take uh, translation projects. Whoever does them, I take them really, really seriously, um, uh, and and I hope they do. You know, uh, the translators, I hope they do as well. In some ways, somewhat to give rein to tradition. I'm, and and I say this as someone who's very steeped in tradition. I'm not so. Uh, what would I say? I'm not so inclined to sacrifice symbolic clarity Mm -hmm. in the here and now for tradition. If if tradition muddies the spiritual transcendent world, then I don't I don't. I don't need it. Uh, uh, I I need things to bring us to God. And I think language, I think uh, I think iconography, uh, I think music, I think it can all maybe music is the highest of all of them. um, But that's the romantic in me speaking. Um, (laughs) um, uh, I, I, I think they all can bring us to that kind of metaphysical reality.
0: Okay. Well, we've been talking for about an hour and 20 minutes. So, uh, I'm going to have to talk to you later about the shift from love of wisdom to wisdom of love with philosophy that you left us with at the talk. Uh, sure. <laughs> but, uh, but that is something I'm going to have to talk with you again later sure. more about maybe we'll have to schedule some more time. Uh, thank you for being with us uh, this has been great. here today. This has been really fun.
1: I hope it's been clarifying.
0: For Justin Jackson, I'm Brandon LeBlanc, thanking you for joining us on Quiddity as we refreshed ourselves at Cisterns of Learning Doug long ago, Drawing from Springs Too Deep for Taint. Join us next week for another episode and be sure to check out the other shows on the Cersei Podcast Network.